Hello, everybody, and welcome to the MBA is Dead podcast. On today's episode, we are hosting Elena Sinel, a multi-award winning entrepreneur on a mission to inspire young people across the world to use artificial intelligence for good. Elena's organization, Teens in AI, uh, which is short for Teens Teenagers in Artificial Intelligence, has for a mission to help develop underrepresented talent, thereby improving diversity and inclusion in the field of artificial intelligence. It offers young people aged 12 to 18 early exposure to AI for social good through a plethora of activities. For example, mentoring, talks, workshops, education on human-centered design and ethics, hackathons, accelerators, company tours, and networking opportunities. Elena's dream is for artificial intelligence to be developed by a, a diverse group of thinkers and doers advancing artificial intelligence for humanity's benefit. Since 2018, Teens in AI has partnered with Microsoft to scale girls in AI across 150 countries. Yeah, okay, so you're ready? Yes, I'm ready, always. Okay, so <laughs> three, two, one. Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you, Eric, for having me, hi. <laughs> How's it going? It's going really well, uh, busy as usual, but still working despite all the challenges um, during the times of Corona. Thank you for asking, yeah. how are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, not easy for anybody these days, but we're, we're getting through it. So, um, you know, I was just, as I was explaining to you earlier, the theme of this show is exploring people's career paths, you know, how they got to where they are today. And that's, you know, why I invited you on the show. I, I find that you have a very interesting career uh, currently, but also that, you know, the history of where you got to is also quite interesting. And so I'd like to dive right into it. And uh, let's start from the beginning. What, what, what did you study in uni? Like, where, where did this all start? My goodness, which uni? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, a few uh, that I graced with my with my appearance. So my very first one, as you know, um, I'm from Uzbekistan, Central Asia. So the very first uni I went to, aged um, 18, was Bukhara State University to study economics. How is that? Awesome. <laughs> then, Amazing. And then a year later, I uh, felt it wasn't practical enough uh, to be um, an economist in Uzbekistan. It didn't really inspire me with anything. So I decided to turn this into something a bit more practical and uh, moved myself into the capital of Tashkent to study business management. Uh, I then ended up uh, uh, exploring various work experience opportunities. Um, and I started working with uh, a consultant at the British Council um, really diving into business management and realized that um, maybe it's time to drop out, something that my mom would not forgive me until even now. Um, so I decided to leave university. So I dropped um, my studies and uh, felt like I was learning more on the job 
And I just carried on working really from then on. Um, and this is really what unleashed some really interesting, exciting opportunities for me to go abroad and explore um, international development abroad as well. Uh, but that wasn't really uh, my my only um, opportunity exploring academia and university. Um, I did my online uh, degree uh, sort of through a distant learning program with London School of Economics, University of London rather, but accredited by LSE. Um, and that was in uh, politics and international relations. I did complete that. And the only reason why I completed that program was because um, I was working at the same time. So I didn't really see myself fit in a classic um, academic environment uh, where I would just go to uni every day. That would just bore me to death. <laughs> uh, so, but I found my, my thing. I was working and I was based in Africa at that time. Um, I was working for uh, various international organizations and my, my husband at that time worked for the World Bank. Um, and I was pursuing my degree externally. That worked. Um, and my last uh, attempt was with my master's um, at King's College London. So I did my master's in war studies um, in conflict security and development. And that somewhat ended my academic career. <laughs> okay, so hold on, hold on, hold on. Because you, know, you gave us a lot of really good material here. But I, I want to I dive into a bit more detail with, with some of this because uh, I know, you know, you got so much going on here that I'm sure you just want to get it all out, but I'm curious. Okay, so you were working in a, consult a consultancy for the British, oh no, sorry, you're working with uh, an organization that was associated with the British consulate? Is that what I got? Um, it was a cons consultant for the British Council. So basically British Council project, uh, British Council funded project. Um, and I was just working, managing a part of a project. So my role was um, to sell really. So I didn't have any background in marketing in sales uh, or anything like that, but somehow I was part of this project where um, 40 women in Nukus, which is the Aral Sea area, uh, were creating some handcrafts, some stuff that they were making by hand, whether it was embroidery or uh, some other artifacts. And my job um, at the age of 19 was to sell it. Um, and basically the livelihoods of 40 women and their families were dependent on um, my ability to sell their products uh, onto the market. Um, and the market at that time was expatriates and various you know, souvenir shops across um, the capital and some other towns in Uzbekistan. So I just had to learn how to do it. And, and, and <laughs> so, okay. And simultaneously as you're doing this, which is super interesting, by the way, you were, you had entered an, a, a business, a master's of business administration program. No, no, it was, no, it was just a, well, it was a business management degree. It wasn't really an MBA. No, it was a bachelor level. So it was still in Uzbekistan. I was very lucky. It was one of these exclusive programs taught in English um, uh, by uh, some some uh, foreigners, I think Peace Corps volunteers and some some other mostly Americans. Um, so it was a very elite program. So my mom still thinks I was very foolish to 
dropped out and just left it. <laughs> but I said, well, I was doing, um, you know, business management. So why should I be learning about business management when I could be doing and learning on the job? I think that is what really excited me about this possibility of working on a real project with people around me who really could teach me so many things um, rather than learning it in a you know, lecture style environment at uni. And it was a really good uni um, with some really great uh, people teaching us. Um, but I felt um, I was learning a lot more by doing. So the experience that you had trying to sell uh, this art these artisanal pieces, mm -hmm. it felt more real to you. And, and then it sort of made you feel disillusioned about the theory that you were learning in the business program that's that's what i get from that definitely absolutely because i think uh out of all the subjects i was uh, learning in my business management degree um i was really drawn to all things marketing and sales uh, mm. i was a great communicator then so i knew i could sell a pen <laughs> uh, and uh, and so i it just came naturally to me project management and um, and marketing was i felt was my forte but um this is the kind of stuff that you are much better off learning about in the hands-on you know environment where you are really exposed to this so just uh writing um quizzes and listening to the lectures and then writing essays about what marketing is and uh, case studies and whatnot was really not something I was interested in. And a lot of the stuff that I was also learning was related to statistics, accountancy. And again, um, it wasn't really something I, I, I was interested in at all. Um, yeah, so I dropped out because I felt business management should have been done on the job. <laughs> and then, so how did you move on from that, that initial job that you had selling the, the, the artisanal pieces um so what happened afterwards obviously uh the project uh went on for a couple of years uh that and then it concluded because um i suppose it became sustainable um the um the centers craft centers were established in multiple cities um so the the project uh completed and i ended up then marrying the said consultant and we just left the country exploring other countries and places where we could do something something similar so i was um just i just carried on learning through various projects that we were setting up in other countries so as a family we also had a child then in in france um we moved to macedonia and we did something similar in macedonia nothing related to crafts but definitely related to capacity building and um, grassroots entrepreneurship. So we did that in Macedonia. Um, and by the time we left the Balkans, we connected eight different countries through youth entrepreneurship. And again, it was a British Council um, funded project, which was very, very interesting. It was called Business Without Borders, but really focused on young entrepreneurs. But I mean, we worked with university students. Um, at that time, uh, we had some students from, you know, Bosnia, Macedonia, Bulgaria, yeah, lots of countries, about eight countries in total. Um, and the focus was really to inspire them with um, entrepreneurship and really show them that they can trade, they can, they can do stuff, they could create. Um, we found that money talks. <laughs> better than politics um, and where politically speaking these countries could not really trade or, or do do anything positive at the level of entrepreneurship 
it really did work. And these students didn't really study business. They didn't really study anything else. They were just keen students who wanted to learn how to make money. Um, and we just created a series of workshops for them and, and got them going um, for a couple of years until again, the project um, ended and we, we left the country, we, we came to UK. So if I understand this correctly, it, it, the funding was from the British government. It's sort of, you know, NGO focused on mm -hmm. development, sort of uh, developing the skills and, and the talent of uh, aspiring entrepreneurs in in yeah. countries that maybe have uh, are, are lacking in, in this to a certain degree. Um, you know, in terms of like, there's maybe like a dearth of, of founders and whatnot. What what kind of businesses were these entrepreneurs setting up? Like, what were you training them? Um, at that time, so the context, uh, just to give you a bit of a background, so that was uh, 2002, uh, 2004, so between 2002, 2004, so the Balkans was recovering from the conflict at that time. Um, so you would still go to Kosovo and you will be told, okay, don't cross that bridge because what if you get shot? <laughs> Something like this. Mm -hmm. So interesting times those were. <laughs> Um, and um, so it was quite challenging. Um, so we had to figure out what was suitable uh, for young people at that time. And there was no technology. Maybe computers obviously existed and everything, but, um, but we didn't really uh, give them any content with, um, you know, related to tech entrepreneurship. It was really just um, to help them identify their passion, uh, their niche, you know, what it is that they wanted. And we found there were some uh, somebody in Macedonia who really was passionate um, about fashion and uh, was creating hats and um, didn't know how to sell, right? Um, mm. And someone else, um, you know, wanted to to make honey or something like that. Um, and again, um, you know, had a lot of acumen or his family had, you know, grandparents, parents or whatnot. But again, um, they didn't know how to market, who to sell, who would buy. Um, so it was that kind of stuff, stuff that they could actually make by hands. Uh, so nothing related to the kind of stuff that we, we see at, at the moment, you know, with technology and whatnot. I suppose right now this could be an interesting something to develop um, in the space of tech entrepreneurship. But going back to 2002, 2004, um, it was about what can you make? How can you sell? Who can you sell to? Can you identify the need and can you, you know, match the need with the with the demand and you know and supply? So yeah, it was just a really basic exercise. So we were just teaching them, um, you know, stuff. How do you know what sells, and um, you know who to sell to and whatnot? And they were very young university students, first, second, third year university students. So we didn't really expect them to drop out or do anything. It was a community building project, I suppose, um, grassroots development. And it was just an interesting experiment that was funded by the British Council at that time. That's fantastic. Uh, really amazing. And, and then, so you did that for a couple of years. What, what was what was the next? The next adventure. Phase? Yeah, the next adventure. Um, we came back to UK. Uh, our daughter at that time, um, you know, she was only two, two and a half years old. Uh, and we were just wondering whether we should settle in the UK or not. Uh, so this is, um, what, 2004. 
Um, and uh, we decided um, UK was a boring place <laughs> for someone like me. I think my, my ex-husband, he was really ready to settle, but uh, I was only 24 at that time, you know, um, and I didn't feel like UK was the right place for a young, you know, 24-year-old woman who has the ambition to change the world. So for me, we ended up in some place called Fareham in Hampshire, and probably one of the most boring places in the world at that time. <laughs> Hopefully thought, nobody from uh, Fareham, Hampshire is listening to this. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> I'm gonna know, get hate mail. Yeah, retired people, people who made the fortune in accountancy, um, law, and something else, who would settle in a place like Hampshire with their thatched cottages and beautiful Victorian buildings. And, um, and that's it. Yeah. So I just looked around and I thought, wow, this is really not the place I want to be in. You know, there are no problems to solve. What can I do in here? I can, I will end up being some admin person, some teacher, some, you know, something like this. This is really not the future I wanted. Um, and I really didn't want my daughter seeing me coming, going to work nine to five, being some teacher or working in an, as an admin in some accountancy office or hotel or whatever. You know, it was one of those boring places. Um, and so I managed to convince my, my husband at that time uh, to leave and find some somewhere more exciting to be. Um, and we ended up finding a really cool project um, in Ethiopia. Uh, out of all the places in the world was a World Bank project. Um, and, um, and yeah, so we ended up moving in 2005, literally six months after we came to England. That was enough <laughs> for me to, um, yeah, yeah, just to kind of see England, uh, what it was uh, at that time where we lived and decide that it really was not for me at all. So we moved to Addis Ababa um, and we lived there for two years, uh, working on a really exciting project funded by Ministry of Tourism uh, and World Bank. And again, it was about livelihoods development, you know, craftsmanship and um, entrepreneurship. So entrepreneurship has always been this um, thread uh, underpinning almost everything I've, I've done really since I was a teenager myself. Um, so, but Africa was very exciting. Um, so we spent two years there, uh, really working with a lot of craftsmen, uh, trying to identify those entrepreneurs who will really take over after we've left, because as a consultant, you can only be in a country for a set amount of time. And then there is time when you leave. And the purpose has always been, how can we make these projects sustainable so that when we leave, it doesn't die. And unfortunately, with... The project we had in Ethiopia, we were developing six different crafts and we did identify um, an incredible amount of potential with um, the skills uh, development and everything. We managed to teach six different crafts from completely scratch. So with basketry, for instance, they only knew how to make round baskets and the other geometrical forms and shapes were completely unknown to them. We were working with tribal populations. Um, so we had to bring in some consultants who would teach them various designs and various forms and shapes um, that they could actually use in their designs and, and, and sell it to the people, to the expatriate market or people abroad and whatnot. Um, and again, we're talking 2005, 2007. Uh, so it was again the times of uh, Meles was in power and uh, elections and we could see a lot of 
politics uh, going on, um, you know, behind the the curtains, which probably wasn't as pleasant as I expected it to be. But the country was again transitioning um, uh, from, you know, a country that was quite dependent on foreign aid to something that's a little bit more uh, what it is right now. So more. Yeah, more independent, but definitely very foreign friendly uh, as well. But it was very interesting to see how, you know, people adapted and how they were willing to learn these new skills. Um, so we've trained about 600 people, I, th I think, uh, in, in two years. And it was a very successful project. We've taken entrepreneurs um, and craftsmen um, to New York, to Frankfurt, to show what they can make. Um, and I remember coming back from New York, um, you know, the trade fair was so successful. They came back with orders worth 30,000 uh, pounds from the very first time they have shown their produce, which was highly successful. Uh, but unfortunately, when we left the country, um, the government decided, the Ministry of Tourism decided um, to just create the same stuff over and over, which, of course, in design is uh, not something that's acceptable. And, um, you know, a few years later, we saw the project just die completely, which was, yeah, not something we wanted to see, but it just happens, uh, unfortunately. Um, but it nonetheless, incredibly was, unfortunate. Yeah, it, was, it was a very interesting uh, project and we've trained a lot of people. And I know some people still um, are creating stuff and there has been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of really interesting um crafts craftsmanship and just in general the industry has really boomed um and a lot has come out of just one pilot project um maybe not 600 entrepreneurs have been able to uh to show to showcase them you know their acumen and survive but definitely there has been some improvement i would say but politically speaking oh. the country has always been on the shaky grounds and that also mm. matters sometimes mm. yeah so if the when you were training these entrepreneurs in Ethiopia or, or mm -hmm. even if in the Balkans or wherever, what would you say was, I mean, I know this is kind of going back like, you know, a decade and a half, but I wonder if there's a learning for, for people listening who haven't, you know, who haven't had this experience like you have, that you have had uh, training on training entrepreneurs and developing economies. Can you talk a bit about what they, what they were lacking in terms of skills and what even after the training they may have been struggling with? Because, you know, entrepreneurship is hard everywhere. Yeah. And, but at the same time, there's oftentimes there's universal challenges that everybody faces everywhere. And I'm just interested if, if what you saw there resonates with, you know, maybe what you see in the UK or, or. Yeah, what, what, what was difficult for these entrepreneurs when you would go in there and you, you train them? Mm, well, for us, uh, we kind of came as external consultants. Um, the project wasn't really developed by myself um, and, and my husband. It was developed by a, a consultancy group who were then hiring people to manage and project lead on this, uh, on this project. So we were not really involved from the very, very beginning. And I feel like uh, had uh, we been involved, probably I would have included the people who were designing this project for. 
And that's called human-centered design, something I came to learn much, much later. So if we were to design a project to benefit the people in Ethiopia or any other country, I like to involve the people in the design of the project because uh, culturally speaking, Right now, for instance, we're doing a project in Brunei, um, and if I were to replicate something like this in Africa, it just wouldn't work because the cultural um, differences would um, would entail me really adapting the project to the cultural needs and socioeconomic needs of the said country, right? So I think um, whenever we create projects, um, this really does matter. We came in as external consultants, without realizing that everything we were teaching local people, uh, a lot of the times it probably didn't make as much sense. And a lot of the times the people we worked with, they have never ever been abroad. Imagine Eric, you're working with, you know, young, really ambitious and highly talented people. But uh, the outcome of the project is you need to create something um, that foreigners will buy or people that you can export. Basically what we were producing was something that Ethiopia was meant to export abroad. Um, so this would be something that Eric, you might want to go on the website and say, I really like that. Uh, but how do they know that they are making something that you are going to like without even knowing you or without even knowing what's really out there in the world? So what we learned is um, they really didn't know uh, what they didn't know. And they really didn't know what was in demand outside of Ethiopia. So this is something I felt like um, we, we definitely got wrong because we assumed that the project would perhaps supply them with some opportunities to go abroad and just explore, you know, some um, cultural exchange trip coming into London and just seeing what, what Marks and Spencer sells or what Harrod cells or what um, you know Selfridges has got, so that they can see uh, what is actually being produced and what is being, what is in demand. Um, so we went in, um, you know, almost like blindly, uh, trying to teach them the kind of stuff that we know is going to be in demand, and we did get it right. But the moment we left, the whole project fell through and it just fell apart because there was nobody else feeding them with ideas and there were no ideas coming out of these craftsmen because they really didn't know what was out there. You see what I mean, Eric? Um, yeah, so you, it's, kind, it's almost as if you were going in there and serving as a rudimentary customer validation yeah, we kind of them. knew. Um, yeah, I I knew what what would sell. So, for instance, if they were making coasters, um, I I would know whether the kind of coasters they're making is something people would buy, and I would could, could advise them on how to improve on the design or on the quality. I think quality was the main one, to be honest. Um, and what would sell or what wouldn't sell. So we had a bunch of consultants we brought in to uh, to show this is what sells. This is what people want. This is, you know, if you go to America, um, they're not really going to buy anything that's too colorful. They like plain, bland and, you know, natural, natural cotton, natural lean and natural silk, that kind of stuff. But you go to mm -hmm. Europe, the demand is completely different. So we ended up, um, you know, teaching all of this 
kind of stuff to the craftsmen. But the moment the project's funding exa got exhausted and we, we left the country is when we realized, but how are they going to carry on? They just couldn't carry on without um, the constant provision of this kind of ideas and know-how. And there was no way for them to actually leave Ethiopia to explore and understand what the actual demand was outside of Ethiopia, you see? So it was that kind of mismatch of expectations. So, um, I mean, yeah, so, and that I suppose lesson would apply um, anywhere else, you know, whenever you, you are trying to start um, a company or embark on an entrepreneurship journey. So first, you know, find what it is that you're passionate about, obviously. Uh, and then second, if you're designing a product, design it with people in mind, who it is that you are developing form. And uh, to date, we teach this concept to the, to the kids as well. You're designing something for disabled. These people need to be part of that entire design process, you know, because without their input, without them uh, telling you what they need, um, it will be really difficult to develop um, a product. So for me, you know, the project in Ethiopia was a product in itself, which I felt like we didn't really conceptualize in the right way. Hence, the outcome wasn't really what we expected. It worked fine whilst we were there delivering that product, so to speak. But the moment we left, um, it just collapsed, unfortunately. Well, listen, that this story is something that is extremely common with any uh, initiative of a company of an organization that's trying to expand beyond its borders. You can take the most sophisticated organization and at least what I've seen in my limited experience of uh, seeing startups go abroad, organizations go abroad, like you said it perfectly, you don't know what you don't know. And many times people go into new geographies with mm -hmm. assumptions that are based on their own culture or their own way of doing things that, you know, within a country may seem, you know, like, oh, well, why, why would you do it any other way? Or you wouldn't even question that the way that um, people do things. And then they go to this new geography, this new country, and the assumptions that they make about how things are done completely destroys any plans that they had for that new market. So it's it's mm -hmm. it's not um, <clears throat> not uncommon, not uncommon, but interesting to hear how it manifested. Um, you know, you would think uh, uh, international NGO going into a, a foreign country, you think they'd have a little bit more wherewithal to prevent for these things, especially uh, when you think of, um, you know, British Council or any similar organizations that, you know, they've been going into different countries for, you know, quite, quite, a, quite a while here that there would be um, learnings from those experiences, but, uh, but I guess not. And so, okay, so you finished. Uh, you so you finished these few years working in Ethiopia. What what came next? Uh, what came next is we we came back. We came back to the UK, um, and uh, and again we spent about um, six to eight months in the UK. And then UK was so it's two thousand and seven, um, two thousand and eight. You know what happened then. <laughs> 
it was very, mm. very difficult to find the job um, in the UK. And again, I mean, we came back and I thought, well, it's the same as 2004. <laughs> there are no problems to solve in the UK. It's um, boring. I mean, we were in a prettier place then. It was it was Bournemouth, so it was by the sea. But again, um, it's um, it's a touristic place. It's a place where people retire in England. It's a lot of old people, um, you know, some obviously basic schools and everything else, but it wasn't really something that excited me. And because I've always wanted to make an impact, um, again, I was looking for ways to get out really. Um, and so we applied uh, to a project um, in Bangladesh uh, for UNDP. And we got a really interesting uh, proposition. So we decided to relocate um, again, this time to Bangladesh. So it was Southeast Asia, um, which, which is something I've always wanted to explore. Um, so Bangladesh was for me a very interesting country that I've always wanted to visit because of microfinance um, and uh, Yunus, Mohammed Yunus and everything he has created. So this was something that I've been fascinated um, to understand how this worked. Um, and how or why he was investing into women the way he was. So uh, for me, it was an interesting ecosystem. Uh, so I really looked forward to that one. Uh, we ended up in a place called Chittagong Hill Tracts, um, which is uh, within Bangladesh, but quite, quite different to the rest of Bangladesh. It was the only, as I know, Christian population in the Muslim Bangladesh. And unfortunately, at that time, we're going back to 2008. Um, this probably was one of the most um, abused areas I have seen. It was by far, I mean, human rights abuse. Um, it was just the kind of level that I didn't expect to see because I thought, okay, Ethiopia was quite challenging um, emotionally to be there during um, times of elections when uh, we were called by the embassy, British embassy, and told, like, don't go out today because today it's elections, it's dangerous. Uh, definitely don't send your daughter to school um, because there will be some violence um, outside. So make sure you're locked in, da da da. And, you know, and the government was going around to schools um, abusing children on the day of election. I could never understand why they would do such a thing. But Bangladesh was a completely different level of abuse, unfortunately. So it was the times when um, the tribal population in Chittagong Hill Tracts um, were trying to survive and the Bangla government was really burning the villages, raping women and trying to push them towards India. Um, and UNDP, the, 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 the organization we were with, um, were providing you know, alternative livelihoods uh, to the tribal populations. Um, and 2008 was also the year of famine um, in Chittagong Hill Tracts. Um, and uh, the way this happened, and I've always felt like, and I still stand by this, I think this was definitely manufactured famine because um, bamboo flourishes every 50 years and apparently it attracts rats. And when rats are attracted, they basically eat all of your all of your supply of all of your crops. And that's what happened in 2007-2008, which was really um, a great shame because this is really what resulted in great famine and a lot of people were dying because there was just no food and the government wasn't really doing much to help the people. So that was the situation, that was the context. And we were there because the, the 
the mission was really how can we help local people and find help them find alternative livelihoods what can we teach them so that they can make a living and they can survive that was really why we were there so that was interesting again this there is that thread of entrepreneurship what can we teach them how can we teach them to sell what they have created i think i ended up doing uh, lots of interesting uh, projects from you know helping with marketing of um, you know, artisanal embroidery and fabrics and whatnot to helping set up small sort of um, mushroom making things <laughs> so that they could mushroom making not not that kind of mushroom, Eric, <laughs> but <laughs> real mushrooms, you know, where they would just grow mushrooms on really simple soil made of, you know, poo and whatnot so, right. so it was really you know uh, very basic stuff and the mushrooms grew fast enough for them to then take them you know once a week to the markets in um in dakar and sell so and that's how they would make make a living and then there was a project where they were making honey uh you know it's again everything is sort of by hand or artisanal that kind of stuff so again nothing nothing related to technology and i mean eric um Chittagong Hill Tracks 2008, they've only just introduced brick stones. So it was very, very tribal, very, very authentic. They were playing with the idea of uh, cultural tourism stuff. They wanted to bring in some, some water skiing and stuff for tourists. And we said, oh God, no, keep it preserved, keep it natural, keep it mm. tourism free. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was very beautiful. Uh, we didn't really stay for long because unfortunately we had to leave due to some family circumstances back to England. And that resulted in the divorce in the family, the breakup and all. And uh, that set me off to a completely new path. Yeah, something different that I had to look forward to uh, when all the difficulties, you know, in the family finally ended um, because I did end up in a woman's refuge at some point with my daughter. Yeah, things have really escalated. Uh, it was very Im challenging emotionally to be in, in that situation when you're kind of, uh, you really don't know what's going to happen to your future, really. So, so this is when um, I had to think of my own journey and that really unleashed my very own entrepreneurial <laughs> spirit, if you like. Mm. Mm. Which I, I think is, I'm, I'm glad we covered this sort of, you know, uh, let's say this is maybe you're, you're, you're describing this as a turning point in your life, both on, both on a personal level and career wise, but I'm super happy that we covered everything up until this point, because I'm, I see there's roots of what you're doing now in what you were doing in the early aughts and so excited to get into this, you know, okay, so this turning point, what, what happens then? And yeah. Um, well, what happened was I just ended up um, in uh, courts and in divorce litigations for about seven years uh, where I felt like my, my freedom to create was really suppressed because I was constantly in this uh, war mindset where I was expecting an attack all the time from my ex-husband um, and um, and he was just hellbent on 
um, destroying me, which is what he said he would. And it was really tough. I was, um, you know, living with my daughter and um, in Bournemouth, where we returned from Bangladesh, I couldn't really find um, a job. So I was basically in the situation in the UK, which I absolutely could not stand at that time, uh, because there was nothing I could see I could contribute. Um, and so I didn't really see myself as doing anything that would really be fulfilling, something that I would really be proud of. Um, what, what were you doing and, at the time, out of curiosity? Um, nothing. I was literally just exploring and trying to figure out. I was just being a mom, trying to find okay. a way. And, and every couple of months I would be in court fighting my ex-husband because he wanted, um, you know, all holidays. He wanted um, custody. He wanted, yeah, everything. And um, and I would have, you know, lawyers or in, eventually I ended up representing myself. Um, and, um, and that was really it. It was literally just like a, a big uh, war lasting um, seven years. And it really has um, exhausted me uh, to the point where I was just wondering, you know, what's what's really going to happen? Is there a life beyond court? Is there a life beyond this whole um, divorce? I ended up uh, almost running away into London because that was the only way I could see myself functioning, uh, being away from the ex-husband who was um, surveying, he was trying, you know, stalking me, uh, trying to figure out, you know, what I was doing, why I was doing, and doing everything to re remove any opportunity I had to reconnect with old contacts, to reconnect with, or to even just have friends. Um, it was really tough, so, but I managed to somehow convince him that um, secondary school in, in London was better than in Bournemouth, and I also enrolled myself into a master's degree to pursue my studies in conflict security and development because I really wanted to go back into international development. And uh, my ambition at that time was to work in post-conflict zones and really help them rehabilitate through entrepreneurship. So this is how I've always seen societies being rehabilit rehabilitated through, um, through entrepreneurship. Um, and, and that was my thing I felt. So I managed to somehow convince my ex-husband to, to just let me go and, and, and give me, give me a chance. Uh, somehow I managed to probably catch him in his, uh, moment of kindness, <laughs> which is very rare at that time. Um, so I moved into London, um, and, um, pursued my, my degree. And at the same time, my daughter started her secondary school. Um, and I think because I had some headspace, I had some time to think and reflect. And the moment I got into King's to do my degree, I, I think one of the first things I did was to connect with the Entrepreneurship Society uh, because I really felt drawn to doing something of my own. I just didn't know what it was going to be. Um, I knew at that time that going uh, back to international development was not going to be easy because my, my ex-husband would never allow me to travel and you know, relocate and do the kind of work I was doing before. So I had to settle on creating something that was fulfilling, that was impactful, something I was really proud of, but in the UK. So that is what I have set myself to do. I said, I need to find a problem and I need to try and solve it meaningfully in a way where I know something amazing is going to happen. And at that time, so that's 2013, 
Um, and um, I had no idea what I was going to do. I just involved myself in the Entrepreneurship Society. I attended some some interesting talks and um, lectures. There was a competition I applied. I had no idea what I was applying with, but it was what I'm doing right now, basically. It was something related to children, something related to education, because at that time I could see my daughter was coming home every day learning to pass an exam. And I thought to myself, my goodness, I just cannot believe it. It's 2013, 2014, uh, my daughter, still learns the same way as I'm learning, as you're learning. And um, my, my mom was learning the same way. It's lecture style, it's going to school and every year you pass your exams and apparently that's what life is about. And I told my daughter, I said, look, this is really weird. I said, primary school, there was so much more fun, a lot of project-based learning. There was a lot more freedom to create. Secondary school, it just turned into death by exams. Um, and I think I was so shocked, <laughs> I had this shock to my system that I lost my daughter to exams. Um, even before exams started, like two, three years before her GCSE, she was saying, but mommy, in three years, I'll have my exams and I need to start getting ready. And I'm like, what? What about, um, you know, pond dipping and mini beast adventures? And what about, you know, making up stories and doing other fun things? <laughs> so all of that was gone. Um, and uh, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to show you how things should really be taught or how you, you would be learning. And I started taking her to various hackathons in London. Um, so yes, yeah, so immediately, as soon as I got into London, my, as I said, my purpose was to find myself. And the best way I felt was to just go to as many networking events um, and something that would really nurture my soul and my mind. Um, so I chose to go to hackathons. I chose to go. Okay, so hold on, hold on, hold on. Cause it, it was, <laughs> okay. so, I mean, this is all gold material. And, and before I step in with my question, first off, I want to, uh, thank you for being open about the more personal, um, aspects of your life, because I think, you know, oftentimes we think that one's professional life happens in a silo and is separate from one's personal life and personal struggles and, and stuff that's happening with their families, with their loved ones, with their children, et cetera. And so it's hugely valuable and inspiring to hear about your journey, uh, your career path, but also like how it relates to your personal life as well. And, and the, you know, challenges that you faced there, the hurdles that you had to overcome. Uh, so that's, that's just absolutely um, uh, appreciated on my part that you're, you're willing to share that. Now, this hack, this idea of going a hackathon. Now, you obviously had already tons of experience in the world of what we call ecosystem building of, you know, laying, you know, uh, spreading the fertilizer uh, to make entre entrepreneurship grow, to, to help, to support entrepreneurs. Where, where were hackathons a part of your lexicon back in the, let's say, international development days? Where, where did the word hackathon come into your view in, in your career path? Mm, no, it was literally just London. 
as soon as so I got how did you hear about the first, do you remember the first hackathon that you heard about because yes this is kind of a it was product yeah, okay. hunt. It was literally like six months before I ran my very first hackathon of my own for kids. Um, yeah, it was uni days. It was literally going back as a mature student. So 2013, you know, I was already what um, in my early 30s. Um, so I just dived into everything London had to offer. I I think what my my power skill, my USP is networking and making connections and and really. Yeah, communication, I suppose. So I thought, okay, uh, I'm in London. Um, I don't know anybody in London at all. I literally knew nobody because my 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 thing was I just ran away, right? So I ran away into the unknown and I had no idea what what would be in London. I literally, I, I'll tell you a funny story of how I ended up in Golders Green. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still based uh, in Golders Green and I, I, I was on a call with my mom and I said, mom, uh, I'm moving into London. That's it. And she asked me, so where are you going to leave? I said, I have no idea. And that's a good, that's a good point. I said, so uh, London is a very big place. There are some really unsafe locations in London. So I have no idea how we will find somewhere where it's safe and where my daughter can go to school, where I don't have to hold her hand until she's 18. Right. And my mom gave me this advice. She said, okay, uh, you need to find a place where Jewish people leave because if you end up in an area with a lot of Jewish people, <laughs> sorry, sorry, that was I would I think that's the least expected comment I've heard. I mean, this is only episode four, I think, but uh, that really came out of left field. Okay, I'm 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 where is she going with this? Please continue. <laughs> well, well, well I, I also wanted to know. I said, what do you mean? You know, Jewish people, what's, well, you know, what's, what's, uh, what, what about it? And she said, well, she said, if you find an area in London with a lot of Jewish people, you will know this will be safe. Uh, there will be no alcohol. There will be no, you know, bars, pubs or anything like that. The best businesses are going to be there and it's going to be safe. There will be the best schools. I said, okay, well, I'll trust my mom. My mom, um, well, she's a historian. She, <laughs> we, we do have a very special Jewish community in, in Bukhara. And probably, you know, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll see. So I put in Jewish, where do Jewish people live uh, in London? I just Googled that. And the first word that came jumping at me was uh, Golders Green, Hampstead. And I'm like, okay, fine. So that's then where I will move. So I started looking for properties in Golders Green. So that is really, uh, and I just wanted to give you that concept because I had no idea where I would end up basically because I, I've only been to London maybe once or twice, you know, just traveling through London to somewhere else. Um, but I've never really lived or explored London properly. So I just dived in. And as I dived in, I gave myself a target. I wanted to know as much as possible about the ecosystem in London, what's happening. And immediately somehow I you know, added myself to all the entrepreneur groups on Facebook. I've added, you know, I found all these um, hubs of entrepreneurs. I found Google Campus. I found, you know, and through King's College London, who were, again, you know, they have all this incredible information and resources for me. I said, I want to know what's happening in London in the, in the space of entrepreneurship. Um, I had no idea that tech entrepreneurship was a thing or anything was happening in, you know, in, in any specific industry. Uh, but I wanted to understand what, what's, what was happening. And I found female groups, you know, female founders or, or just various networking events just for, for women. Um, but as I was 
a student. Again, I took advantage of everything uh, the students could have access to, which was, again, lots of different um, bespoke events and, and networking opportunities for students who were either entrepreneurs or whatnot. So at that point in time, I really forgot about my future career in international development. I was really there using this opportunity being a student, mature student in London, just networking and trying to figure out what's really happening and how I can get involved. So, so then... Uh, so, uh, forgive me for interjecting, but I, because I find this, you know, everything that you're saying absolutely fascinating. The one thing that's missing a little bit for me is, I, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around like concrete. <laughs> Uh, well, the only reason I specifically ask about hackathons is because I, I, you know, I, I think for the average person like, or for somebody, you know, I can sort of, to a certain degree, picture how you you going through this path. But for somebody who's, you know, maybe all of this is very new, it's always good to have like concrete, like the Golders Green story is, is fantastic. Like, I, you know, because it's like, oh, okay, I, I get that. And, and the, the story about your mom, <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, giving you advice and, and you acting on, um, you know, I'm trying to get more into the, like, the actual concrete action. So, the like, you said that the first hackathon you went to was a product hunt hackathon? Yes, there was even a Facebook group still I'm part of, which is a product hunt hackathon. And um, how did you come across that? Did yeah, I believe I believe this information was just shared with uh, with students as students get all this random information into their emails. Um, and like I said, I got involved in I added myself to every single entrepreneur group in London. Like gotcha, every gotcha. single but like yeah. Facebook group. Yeah, Facebook. Uh, yeah. So somebody right, shared, okay. oh, there is a hackathon. And I thought, oh, what's a hackathon? I looked it up and gotcha. I thought, wow, genius. Kind of everything related to hackathon is what I did just without the tech. So it's community building, right? is community right. building for a purpose am i right yeah yeah i don't know well i mean uh that's what it achieves i don't think it's always explicit when somebody puts a, ha a hackathon together but ultimately yes you're you're 100 yeah. percent correct so that, what I um, saw in a hackathon is an opportunity to bring people together to build something that was meaningful and immediately as soon as i read that i thought wow that's amazing i, I also at the same time uh came across startup weekend um, mm -hmm. So the two somehow got connected because I thought, okay, hackathon is kind of like a startup weekend, but startup weekend is connected more to entrepreneurship, whereas a hackathon is more tech, 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 which I felt from the very beginning, it was just a really strange, wrong approach just to develop tech for no reason or for a very- that, That's reason. a very, very <laughs> accurate statement that you're making there. So I, just, to, just to, because what I also find interesting, because, you know, obviously we're both- um, you know, have careers based in London. So this is going to be a bit London centric, but the, I mean, a product hunt, the hackathon, what year is this? Cause it's, it's not too long ago or maybe I'm wrong. Um, it was 2015. Okay. Um, yeah. That makes sense. The, that makes sense. Yeah. That was the year when I ran my very first hackathon for teenagers. So I got um, an invite and I joined um, as a participant with my daughter. So I thought oh, amazing. it would be really cool. Uh, and I really wanted to show my daughter what it was, but I had no idea what it was myself. I just said, Victoria, I know we normally go pond dipping on the weekend, but this time we're going to go to a hackathon and we're going to create something really cool using technology. And how old was she? Uh, 2015. Uh, she was, uh, she was born in 2002. Yeah. So 13, right? She was 13, 14. 
Wow, that's very young. That's 13. Great. I think she was only 13. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was the youngest one. She really liked the attention that she was the youngest one and had some great ideas and some great contributions to the team. Um, and uh, if, if I mention some of the names in that Product Hunt Hackathon, you will remember uh, Lu uh, Lulu. Do you remember Lulu um, in the, from the Female Founders Network? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I still talk to her all the time. In yeah, fact, I think I'm, yeah, I'm going to get her on the show the at, at, at some point. Yeah, she was one of the mentors there. Uh, we've also had, I mean, a lot of people uh, from our common network would have been there either as mentors or participants, Eric. <laughs> so it would have been literally, if I started mentioning all the names, you would say, oh, yes, I do know him or her or whatnot. Yes, it was a real, really familiar crowd, familiar to me now. At that time, I didn't know anyone and they didn't know me either. Um, so it was all cool. But again, I joined with my daughter and I deliberately wanted my daughter to be in a different team. So we, and we were not even in the same team. So I was in one team, she was in another team. And I just- Oh, wow, cool, okay. Yeah, so we competed, we competed. We came in <laughs> as, as uh, idea people. So Victoria had some ideas. I can't remember her pitch now. Uh, she didn't really get many people uh, wanting to, to solve the problem that she wanted uh, to solve. I, you know, and I can't remember at that time what it was, but I remember she had the, uh, you know, she found the courage to actually share her idea with the crowd of people. It was a very classic hack, you know, three days on Friday, you go and you meet the people, you build the teams. Um, and then on Saturday, you go in and you start building, you know, and, um, and on Saturday you pitch, you know, it was a three day hack like that. Um, at WeWork, a great location. Many people stayed overnight. I just, obviously, I was with my daughter. We left and then we came back. Uh, but it was really great atmosphere. And for the first time, I could see my daughter in a completely different environment where she had to learn the kind of stuff she's never even heard of, like go and speak to random people on the street, ask them these questions. This is called market research. Like go and try and get into the heads of the people you're trying to solve you know, um, you're trying to develop this product for. And she was like, mom, this is fun. I was actually outside with uh, one of my team members asking questions, asking random questions to random strangers. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and obviously she also had a go at developing some some logo and some front end, some, some other stuff. So she found it really fun. So for me, obviously, I was more as a sort of my contrib contribution to my team was more on the business side, marketing and whatnot, because I'm not really a tech and hackathons are notoriously, you know, more uh, for tech savvy people. So I had no idea what technology was at that time, uh, but I was contributing in other ways like business innovation and, and pitching and whatnot, project management. Uh, and my daughter was also having fun in a different team. So I think uh, what happened was in round two, my team, we both went through to round two. And then in with the finalists, I think my team was um, second or third. So top three teams, definitely. And her team lost. So it was this <laughs> disappointment. My daughter was very unhappy. And she said, okay, when is the next hackathon? I'll go again. And this time I'm going to do even better. So wow. that's what I saw. This was a really like a tipping point, I suppose, in my, in my mind. I thought, okay, hackathons are amazing because it's really not only about the technology that you're learning um, and, uh, and you're using to build something, but it actually brings people together. And that is what I felt was what was really something I really aspired. Um, and then when I felt, felt, how would this apply to education? Because my daughter really learned so many amazing things on what we call project-based learning, right? Something that's really missing in schools. 
I felt, imagine if hackathons were like school. Imagine the kind of amazing stuff kids would be learning. And this is, I think, where I kind of started thinking, okay, I really want to trial it. I was just desperate to try this concept um, to trial a hackathon with teenagers. So this was the very first hack I ran, literally six months, I think, after Product Hunt Hackathon, or maybe even less than that. Um, and the very first hackathon was with 70 kids who I forced from some school in Camden, 16 to 18 year olds. Um, and this was in London Bridge offices of uh, News International. And, you know, there is another story to that. I just could not find an office. Like WeWork said no to me. Every other co-working space said no to me. London uh, campus, Google campus also didn't really have uh, availability on that weekend. Um, and I ended up two, three weeks before the hackathon, uh, I didn't have a space. And then suddenly I reached out to my network of, um, you know, female entrepreneurs and people and just asked, can anyone please help me find a venue? London, come on. London should have many empty buildings on a weekend. <laughs> um, it was really tough because people couldn't understand, like, what is she doing really? This is a hackathon for teenagers. Like, what, what can really teenagers do? Um, and... Um, yeah, and it wasn't until I received an email from Sarah Wood from Unruly. You probably remember that company, yeah? Yep. yep. Um, and, and Sarah said, are you still looking for a place? I said, yes, I still am. And I'm literally tearing my hair out because I can't find anything. She said, well, I'll put you in touch with um, News UK, News International, because they have just acquired Unruly. So uh, I think they would be a great fit because they have News Academy for young people. So maybe there is a potential partnership. I said, wow, that would be amazing. So literally a couple of days later, I met uh, News um, UK team. So that would be the team um, led by Rebecca Brooks. And at that time, 2030, uh, 2015 was when uh, she was recovering from a hacking scandal. Uh, if you remember, you know, a mobile hacking scandal and she she did insist at that time she didn't really want this uh, event called Hackathon. So I had Right. Was this, hold on, was this the <laughs> scandal with the uh, the voicemail? Yes, yes, yes. Remember? Um, Rebecca yeah, yeah, they, they, the, with the, the girl who had passed away and they went into the voicemail and deleted it by accident. The, uh... yeah, yeah, all of that was happening, you know, and she was, right. you know, right in the middle of this whole scandal. It was just really, really bad, you know, court court hearings and all. Oh, right. And so News International didn't want to host an event called a hackathon. Yes, because they thought it really didn't didn't sit well with the... with. Yeah, the, no, I could, I could I, understand that, to yeah, be honest. The compromise on the word hackathon so i had to call it a coding weekend right that was <laughs> but that was fine i honestly didn't care uh, my daughter still thinks this was uh the best venue out of all the venues we've ever had she still remembers mm. that very first hackathon in this amazing amazing offices i think it was 16th or 17th floor it was uh, rebecca brooks um boardroom we've used for workshops um, and wow. uh, again, a lot of the people, uh, if I were to mention, obviously Mike Wucci was one of the judges. Um, we've had, oh my goodness, lots of investors and entrepreneurs who came uh, to support this event, either as mentors or as um, judges and, and whatnot. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was literally um, improvising. I was inventing things as you know, on that weekend, because at some point I thought, okay, something is missing because I'm not sure whether the kids are 
developing the stuff that they're meant to be developing, but something is definitely missing. Ah, okay, we're missing a Python workshop. Let's do a Python workshop. And I would just go and say, okay, we're going to run a Python workshop because guess what? It's a hackathon and I completely forgot we're meant to teach you how to code. So, um, yeah, so I would literally improvise and say, oh, Tanya, you probably know Tanya Larrick as well from, um, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the company yet, uh, anymore, but she was approached by me on that same weekend. I said, Tanya, shall we run a marketing workshop and teach these kids how to find their target market? Because I think that's really important. She said, yeah, sure. Just get me the kids from the, you know, from one kid per team and let's run a marketing workshop. Uh, then next I said, okay, so we need to introduce them to business model canvas, right? Because we kind of can't have a hackathon without them understanding business models and innovation. Because for me, from the very beginning, it wasn't just about code and prototyping uh, their solutions, uh, but it was also uh, for them to really understand and get to the grips of the concepts like marketing, like business models, innovation, pitching skills, and all of that. So all of these workshops were literally invented on the day by me asking people kindly um, I know this is your superpower. I know you can do this because you do this for a living. Would you run this workshop for me now, like in the next like 20, 30 minutes? And I will get you a small crowd of kids. Uh, you will teach them all the, you know, the basics of um, marketing or, you know, demystify this business model canvas. And, um, and of course, um, nobody could say no. They would say, of course, yeah, I'll do that. And so we managed in that weekend, we invented the entire framework. Uh, so we taught them design thinking. We taught them uh, how to code. We taught them a business model canvas. We taught them some stuff on marketing and we taught them pitching skills. And when the judges arrived on Sunday evening, they really could not believe it that teenagers had their pitch decks ready, uh, their code ready, their demos ready, and um, they were actually pitching their startup ideas. It was completely unheard of. Nobody has ever seen, I think we had about 20 teams at that time. It's a lot to listen to. And, and Mike Butcher came to me and said, so who's gonna be MC? And I'm like, what does MC mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's literally what my conversation with Mike. And he said, well, you know, MC, master of ceremony, you know, who is gonna be presenting these, um, these, these pitches? Who's gonna be introducing? And I said, well, I don't have anyone. It's gonna have to be me, so can you, can you teach me what that even means? What am I supposed to do? He said, well, um, and Michael remember that. He's, he said, well, you must always thank the sponsors first. Like you always begin by saying thank you to all of the sponsors who've helped you, you know, make this event happen. I said, okay, fine, what next? Well, and then you just carry on and you just um, go from one team to another. And then in the end, Elena, again, don't forget to thank the sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> that was literally my conversation with Mike. I said, okay, I'm-, I'm follow, follow the money. <laughs> yes, I said, I'm learning, uh, you know, the you know, skills from these top top people, uh, literally there on the go. Um, and I said, okay, great, I'm gonna be the MC. Um, and obviously, um, you know, I did everything. We had uh, really amazing judges, apart from Mike, we had um, um, the CEO of the, um, oh my goodness, all, all my, the names are now escaping because it was 2015, but we had Nina, um, uh, Nina Patel. Um, oh yeah. Nita Patel, you know her, Nita Patel. Uh, so we had Mike Butcher, who else did we have? We had uh, Nancy Fetchner, uh, she was one of our, 
uh, investors on as one of the judges. Um, she was an investor at that time. Who else did I have? I had Amali uh, from Coach Plus Girl. She's now at Microsoft. So she was one of the judges as well. Um, I think I had um, Kathy um, from uh, CW Communications. Um, at that time, she was um, heading marketing at um, Seed Camp. Uh, so her influences were really quite, quite the impressive panel. And so, yes, and Tanya Led is... was one of the judges as well. So, you would know Tanya Led as well. Uh, so, yeah, so I had about six or seven really amazing top tier judges that I just didn't expect um, they would even say yes to an event like this. But they all said yes. Um, they all really enjoyed it and they all told me, okay, um, what's next? Like, you need to do more of these. And I'm like, <laughs> no way, I'm not going to do it again. It was the most exhausting thing to run this entire weekend, really not knowing what I was doing, completely improvising constantly, <laughs> learning on, on the job, so to speak. Um, but it all went amazingly well. We had um, so much interest and kids, every single child uh, came out asking me like, why isn't school like that? I want my school to be like that. I've learned so many skills because I never heard of any of these concepts like agile, project management, business model canvas, marketing. Um, you know, I've never heard of any of this and I didn't know I could actually make an MVP within one weekend. So they surprised themselves and I could just show them that they can do anything. And in addition to this, we had some inspiring talks, you know, to inspire them with various career journeys. I had the CEO of Firefly who came, Simon Hay, uh, he was one of the speakers and some other incredible, incredible speakers. So yeah, it was a, an incredibly successful. And so conference. if I understand correctly, though, even though you, you know, you just said that it was, you know, an amazing event, but also very exhausting. But then also, if I correct me if I'm wrong here, but was the genesis of something of, of what you're working on now, no? Absolutely. I mean, I could definitely see this would be something that could definitely fix some of the deficiencies of education because my, my um, the thing that I was trying to fix was really um, education system because I rebelled as mom. I thought, okay, my daughter is learning in the way she should not be learning in the 21st century. There should be some better education systems. And I was told by my ex-husband that England has got the best education system and um, it really doesn't. Uh, and I said to myself, okay, well, something better needs to happen. Something needs to change. I remember I watched this most amazing TED talk by Ken Robinson, um, which was titled, um, you know, Education Kills Creativity. And this oh, yeah, that's, I think that's the number one TED talk, uh, exactly, if, I, if yes. I remember correctly. And I remember yeah. I watched uh, that back in 2014, 2015, and I thought, bingo, this is it. Something needs to be done. Uh, I could do another TED talk about it, but how many more TED talks need to happen before somebody actually, you know, does acts something. on this and does something? And I felt really drawn to this. I really felt almost like a calling. I said, okay, finally, there is a problem in this country that, I really want to solve because all these years, you know, I was living in, in the UK and I felt like, my goodness, like such a boring place. Why, why would anyone want uh, to come into the UK and uh, settle here? This is 
really boring. I don't even know what I'm going to be doing. Oh, you you uh, do realize that this podcast goes public. That you... I know. Uh, that was just me, you know. But but imagine I'm a girl from Central Asia, you know, as a teenager. I That's all I, I always dreamt of. I always wanted to change the world and I always wanted to travel. So because of my unfortunate family circumstances, I could not travel, right? So I had mm. to figure out um, my way of living a purposeful life something that is um profoundly what i'm felt like i'm meant to do i'm not uh destined i'm not really designed to work in a bank or work in a um, company nine to five doing some stuff for other people i knew that i wanted something that i was really proud of and whatever i was doing had to be changing lives had to be really and, impactful and i knew that and when i was a teenager so you know, conscious of time here, uh, I want to, I mean, can you tell us about what you're doing now? Because I, I feel like what you're doing now is, is extremely exciting. And, you know, we just talked about, I think, the first sort of instance of, of you doing something that started what you're working on now. So do you want to mm. maybe tell us a little bit about what's going on now and, and how that relates to the story that you just told us? Absolutely. Well, First of all, now uh, my daughter is 18, so <laughs> mission accomplished there. So she really mm -hmm. did inspire me to, to try and do something with the education system. Um, so since then we've ran, I don't know how many hackathons now, I've lost count because everything is now digital as well. But we've definitely worked with more than 6,000 young people across the world. Um, and these hackathons have taken place as far as um, Kenya in Africa, as far as, um, you know, we've had kids participate from Mongolia, kids participate from Romania, Warsaw. Um, I think the, in the last hackathon, we've had at least 23 cities represented. So it's definitely been quite an interesting journey. And as you know, Eric, you know, um, first couple of years, it's really hard to find that business model, something that actually pays uh, is it really a passion project? Is it a side project or is it actually a business? You know, so for the first two, three years, uh, it really could not be anything but uh, a passion project because the intention has always been to make an impact. But then I realized, okay, if it doesn't pay my bills, it's, it's gonna, something else needs to pay my bills. And if that turns into a side project, it's never gonna be the same as what it could be. So I had to figure out my business model. I had to understand how, how this is going to make money and how this will grow as a business as well. How can I hire more people to make even more of an impact? So what we're doing right now is we niched into artificial intelligence and we're teaching kids um, AI and data science for impact um, using hackathons as a framework, but not your typical hackathon. When I say hackathon, I know I always undersell myself because people assume, oh, this is just a weekend where people just create some cool technology, right? But it's not really that in, in our case. In our case, it's a very much a holistic model where we don't just teach AI and data science, we also teach AI ethics. Um, and we have inspiring people um, that share their career journeys and inspire young people. And at the same time, we dive into human-centered design um, uh, and business and innovation and entrepreneurship skills. It's a very holistic uh, program that um, 
couldn't be described just as, as a hackathon. But we've managed to partner with some really, really amazing companies like uh, Microsoft, like MasterCard, and every single one of these partnerships is, is another incredible story that perhaps one day, if I, if I do have time to write a book, I will definitely be happy uh, to share these stories with the world because everything was very serendipitous. And whenever I wanted uh, a partnership, um, I would obviously I wouldn't know where, which company it would be with, but opportunities somehow would always come my way. I never had to work too hard to find my next project, my next partnership. And I think that only happens when you are on the right path, when you know you are doing something that really uh, is fulfilling your purpose, your life purpose. And that is probably what I would always recommend to entrepreneurs or people who are just embarking on their journeys to really find something that um, that fulfills you, that you know this is what I really want to do. You know, if money didn't matter, what would you do? I would say this is what I would do. Even if there was no money coming in, I still would be doing what I'm doing right now, which is empowering you know young people across the world to change the world. And technology what, what? is just a medium. What I find incredible about this is the focus on AI mm -hmm. while simultaneously your demographic is teenagers. It's such a new domain, uh, artificial intelligence. I think there's still this assumption that, you know, you can only be somebody with a doctorate in machine learning with, you know, 20 years experience coding and uh, you know, with just a uh, deep, deep expertise in the field, you know, I, I think a lot of people probably still think that AI machine learning, everything around it is only reserved for those types. And what you're doing with this, these events and this community is saying basically, no, like we can all access it and we should yeah. actually be getting uh, our younger, uh, you know, younger people to be getting into it now because it's a super important field. It's going to be creating the most amount of impact and value in the tech sector in the in the coming, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 years and 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 and, and beyond. Um, and so it's super important to you know like be having getting these kids exposed to these technologies. And now and not saying, well, you got to wait until, you know, you're, you know, proficient in coding or proficient in this, proficient in that. It's like, no, let's just, let's just dive into it now. So that's, that's really exciting and very cool. What, um, where do you see it going? What, what's the vision? Well, uh, like you've rightly put it, um, I think the vision is to really show young people that they can achieve anything and they can learn anything um, anytime, despite their age. We have kids who are only... 15, uh, 14, 15, 16, who already are doing uh, this course by Andrew Eng on Coursera, um, the one that introduces to you to the fundamentals of machine learning and AI. Uh, this is your MicroMasters, you know, or like a course which is often taken by students or, you know, master's PhD or whatever. But we have teenagers who are doing these courses already. And that just shows how capable they are and we just need to trust them to do this incredible you know learning at their own pace online so i definitely see 
us making an impact in young in in us instilling that belief in the young people's ability to learn anything they want and change the world in the way that they know is going to make that world a better place for them to live in um, so the vision is always create more impact and the way i see this growing is really um you know breaking the boundaries the cultural and the geographic boundaries that we somehow have managed to construct in the past you know centuries um, and I've always wanted to break those boundaries. I wanted to connect. Do we have a, a future, a future uh, coding engineer and hacker on the line? <laughs> He's whispering as well. So cute. He shouldn't whisper. He should, we should get him on the call. This is about the uh, future generations, right? Yes, he is whispering, telling me that he doesn't know the password to my phone. Can you imagine? Can you give me the password? <laughs> That's awesome. So, so yes. Yeah, so I think the the future for me is um, is really connecting young people from across the world um, to this opportunity to uh, to explore the potential with AI and data science and IoT and robotics. Um, and show them that they there is no reason why they shouldn't be learning about this now. And the earlier they learn, the better it is for them and for the world, because they will be the ones to shape that world. So it only makes sense that they do this now. But the key thing for me has always been connecting people. So it's always about bringing people together, bringing communities together. And so the dream come true scenario for, scenario for me is to bring young people you know, from San Francisco, connecting to young people from London, from, uh, you know, Kenya, Southeast Asia, you know, every single, every single part of the world. I really do strongly believe that every single young teenager should be able to access this program. And, um, and we are making this program either completely for free or very, very subsidized um, because it's the corporates who we partner with who pay for this. Um, and so this program becomes then available completely for free for, for any teenager that joins really and who is, um, wants to embark on this journey. So I, I, I love it. I love it. Um, and I, I feel like this is, uh, cause you know, we're, we're sort of past, uh, past our time limit here, but I think this is a perfect, uh, the perfect note to wrap up on, uh, especially because it, it sort of speaks to how you've gone almost full circle on this, where, yeah. you know, your earlier career was all about um international development if you know for lack of a better word about you know encouraging entrepreneurship in developing countries um but back then the sort of the approach was well what 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 are, what are the local communities good at they're good at you know creating these artisanal uh crafts you know let's let's see what their inherent uh sort of or, or their traditional um uh, you know, crafts are and see if we can develop something out of, out of that. And then this is like a complete shift yeah. where let's, you know, hurdle them into the 21st century where rather than, you know, uh, focusing on if they can sell uh, coasters, let's see if they can uh, develop AI machine learning empowered software Mm. Um, and with all due respect to traditional crafts, uh, if you're trying to create uh, value in a country, if you're trying to, you know, uh, lift up uh, the workforce of a of a developing country, um, you know, teaching them these these 
coding skills and in particular skills that relate to cutting edge, cutting edge technology such as like AI and, and machine learning, uh, you know, the, the impact of that can't be overstated. And also the fact that you're, you know, focusing on teenagers, um, I can only imagine that the, the kids that are uh, joining your community must be just super excited and super inspired to be working on such exciting technology and connecting with peers like all around the world. Um, so it's very cool. It's very cool. Mm -hmm. I applaud you uh, enormously in in your work and your efforts. And I'm really glad that you were that you found the time to uh, get on the podcast and share your you know personal journey and your your personal story. Um, especially, I think before we got on the call, you even mentioned that you have a demo day in a couple of days, uh, which uh, impressed impressed me even more because I was like, oh wow, this this person is extremely busy, but still came on to share their story. So that said, um, yeah, thank you for coming on the show and uh, wishing you the best. Is there any? Do you want to plug anything? Do you have any websites or or any any way that if anybody wants to support you, uh, where can they find you? Um, if they would like to support us or join us, uh, they can find us on uh, Twitter, on Instagram, uh, Teens in AI, and um, the website. Sign up to the newsletter and you will get notified. And connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm always up for conversations. And uh, if there is anything I can, I can do um, impactful, changing lives um, in any country, I will be always up for a challenge. And uh, I think it's exciting times we live in and the young people do need to be offered this kind of opportunities. Um, and it's just uh, fascinating to see what comes out of these projects. But most importantly, it's what comes, um, how this is affecting their minds and um, how they start thinking. And I think if anything, it's empathy that we develop and young people become more empathetic and they really do care. And I think we do underestimate this young generation. They really do want what's best uh, for the world. Um, and um, the more we empower them, I think the better the world will be. Could not have said it better myself. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. <laughs>